Hi, I'm Justin Wright. And I'm Nick Pye. We run a business called Mangrove, which helps businesses grow and stretch. I think we've always been super interested in new ideas and how they can drive personal team and business growth. We even went as far as capturing our learnings and researching how it works in other fields beyond business, like elite sport and the military, putting it all in what I'd say was an excellent book called Stretchonomics. So here we're pushing things on again as we explore a number of topics, some of which we didn't know much about at first, but topics that are becoming increasingly influential in our work, and hopefully by understanding them, we can better apply them to our day jobs. Now, Nick, you love a business book, don't you? Yep, I've even been known to sleep with a copy of the Harvard Business Review underneath my pillow. Whereas I tend to get bored pretty quickly by that sort of thing and just want to know how stuff can be applied. So I guess what we try to create here with this podcast series is something with a bit more balance to keep both the purist and the practitioner happy. This is the first uh, podcast in the series that we'll be looking at marketing in the broadest sense and how it's changing. This means looking at topics that are impacting how we work, but also how we interact with external partners, customers and stakeholders. We track down experts in a wide range of fields, in many cases actually deliberately not marketeers, to try and avoid the sort of self-absorption that special interest groups get from when they start talking to each other on social media. And the aim is to try and get views on topics of the moment, which are as diverse as emotional intelligence, risk, decision-making and agility. Before we start, it is worth saying that this is a pilot. There it is. That's the disclaimer. So I guess please don't judge us too harshly on the first one. Yep. Hopefully it's interesting and entertaining, but do forgive us any minor sound quality issues we might have had with the first one. We were trialling a range of devices and locations, some of which I have to admit work better than others. What we're hoping to do is explore a diverse range of views on each topic and then try and make sense of them before we can think about application. So that's the preamble done. Shall we uh, crack on? Yeah, I reckon so. Today, um, we're focusing on emotional intelligence, also known as EQ. This is something we're being asked a lot about as a business at the moment. Uh, and come to realise that I think a lot of our clients are noticing that as technology and data revolutionises their ability to target and deliver tailored messages to very specific audiences, then the need for a more personal human-to-human connection increases. It's almost as if the more technical marketing gets, the more human it must become. Because whenever one uses the same technology as the same data, then using emotion intelligence in marketing becomes your competitive advantage. And I think as businesses and brands seek to build better, longer-term relationships with their customers, consumers, and even their stakeholders, then they need to be more empathetic and connect on a more emotional level. And I guess that this requires us to have better emotional intelligence in our people and also to be able to create marketing with more emotional intelligence. So for this podcast, we invited along four people with quite different perspectives and experiences And interestingly, none of them are marketeers. So first up, we spoke to Casper Berry. We've known Casper for a long time. I think we've always been interested in his perspectives around risk and decision-making. He is a Cambridge graduate studying economics, subsequently worked in TV, and then as a stint as a professional poker player in Las Vegas. And he's now a very highly rated and in-demand motivational speaker. I think we've always loved his clarity in thinking about how and why we make the decisions we do. And in this conversation, we really dug into the role of emotion in decision-making. We also spoke to dancers turned authors and consultants, Claire Dale and Patricia Payton. They've written an interesting book called Physical Intelligence, which, a bit like the corporate athlete back in the 1980s, looks at the interaction between the physical being and the emotional state. In particular, they're interested in the chemistry of our bodies and brains and how that impacts how we feel and therefore what we do. 
And last and definitely not least, I spoke to Laura Penholt, and I apologise in advance, that it was a rather noisy room above the streets of Soho, and we picked a day when they found an unexploded World War II bomb in the next street, so there's a few sirens in the background. Laura trained as a physio working with elite athletes in skiing, rugby, as well as working with Team GB for the 2012 Olympics. This inspired her to create and lead a team to row across the Pacific, so that's 9,000 miles. In doing this, she broke world records and starred in an award-winning movie called Losing Sight of Shore, which charted their journey. She's also supported Mark Beaumont in his record-breaking cycle around the world a couple of years ago and has latterly returned to the water to support Team GB sailing in the run-up to Tokyo. When we spoke to her, it was really interesting to hear about how she's used EQ to manage herself and the team in the boat on the row, but also the athletes she works with in some really quite high-pressure situations. I have to say the cynic in me wanted to call BS and all this emotion and empathy nonsense and dismiss it as a bunch of psychobabble or fluffy marketing waffle. And there was me thinking you were the highly trained psychologist. You always claim that. Well, I think it's pushing it a little bit, but I do know enough to be dangerous. And I suspected there might be some value in science behind it, especially when you think that several large studies have shown that emotional communications are advertising about twice as effective as rational ones. But also on a personal level, some of the best people I've ever worked with I know have scored very highly on EQ tests. Obviously not you. Yeah, obviously. Um, but also, if you've read the literature, which you may or may not have done, what it suggests is about 90% of the top performers in big businesses have higher than average EQs. Um, and if you, there's also some studies that suggest if you've got a good EQ, you're more likely to earn more. Uh, and the, the figure they've put on it is about $30,000. Um, And there's also some academic work that's looked at uh, how people work in big companies and that the typical executive in a big company, nearly 60% of their job is made up by uh, EQ. So it's definitely worth a second look. Yeah, I agree. Before we start, let's make sure we all have in mind the same sort of concepts and definitions and cut through some of the nonsense. If you read any of the books that you like to, um, they say that emotional intelligence is generally the ability to recognise, understand and leverage emotions to work for you in the pursuit of better relationships. That's either with others or with your target audience in the case of marketing. And generally, people agree there's five dimensions of EQ. The first one is self-awareness, being aware of your emotions and their impact on others. The second is emotion regulation, being able to control your emotions, especially under pressure. The third is self-motivation, being driven by some higher purpose beyond money so that you don't give up when things get tough. Fourthly, empathy, the ability to understand the emotional makeup of others. And finally, social skills, being good at managing relationships and building networks. As you'll see, our experts all seem to be of the view that self-awareness is perhaps the most critical of these five. Definitely. And I think reflecting on these conversations that actually work we've done recently with clients, it does feel like emotional intelligence is more important than ever. I think one reason is that many customer-facing executives or executives in general are actually faced with increasingly complicated challenges, difficult decisions, less time and money, and often very confusing uh, attitudes to risk uh, and growth. I think this pressure can have a range of negative impacts on individuals, but one we're really going to look at is when emotion enters the decision-making process. And this is the focus of our upfront conversations. How can we use the understanding of emotions to get to better decisions? As we get further into the topic, we'll touch on themes which are more relevant to customer-facing challenges, such as the concept of empathy. First up, let's hear from Casper, Claire and Patricia. Casper talks about debunking the myth that a good decision is actually a rational one. The interesting thing about emotions in decision-making is that it is sometimes regarded as the holy grail of a great decision-maker to have 
no emotions and, and to be uber rational. But there are two flaws with that. Number one is that a lot of decision making is about things that are inherently emotional. So if you were unemotional, right, and you were making a decision about maximizing profits, you might do it in a way that made your shareholders very angry. There's a good example of that, of course, in the in the big short, the hedge fund manager. You know, they, they were perfectly, they were brilliant decisions that he was making, but all his investors wanted to pull out, right? So that's, that's an example of that, because he had no emotional understanding of the loss aversion of his investors. And the second thing is, there are documented cases of people who uh, have that, uh, you know, emotional removal due to injury and illness and all the rest of it, and the one famous story is that the therapist says at the end of the meeting, okay, so when should we meet again? And the patient flips through his diary for 30 minutes because he has no feelings about any of the days. So we need emotions. Ideally, what you're trying to do, to, to talk technically for a moment, is to map your utility curves onto the upsides and downsides that you're trying to assess so that you are not disproportionate in any way. You're not disproportionately risk averse. You don't have too much fear of failure or loss, but neither do you have too much of the chemical level dopamine. That's what makes people gamble. So I think emotions are, they have a bad name in decision making. And that's a shame because what we should be doing is managing and understanding them. In fact, another very good example is this. Okay. So let's say you've, theoretical example, you've got, you've got a single parent, right, with £20,000 worth of debt and Richard Branson and they're both playing deal on a deal. Are they going to make different decisions? Yes. Is that partly a product of their situations? Yes, of course. But what their situations do is it makes them feel differently about the money. What are we going to say, that one of them's wrong, that the single parent should hold out, should turn down an offer of 32000 because the £250,000 box is still out there? That's an insane thing to say. Now, that does lead to a kind of relativist nightmare where you therefore can't challenge anyone's decision because it's, quote unquote, right for them. But emotions are really important in decision making. And when I do a 45 minute speech, which focuses on the maths, because that's a sort of underlying interesting thing that has all the implications, some people do misunderstand me and think that I'm saying that we should approach everything with abacuses and I'm not. And Claire and Patricia go one step further and challenged us to think about the effect of chemistry, the chem particularly the chemistry of our brains, on our emotions and the subsequent decisions we make. Right now, in each of our bodies, no matter how old we are, no matter where we live, there are literally hundreds of chemicals, both hormones and neurotransmitters, that are racing through our bloodstream and our nervous system. And those chemicals dictate how we think, how we feel, how we speak, and how we behave. Most of us are operating largely at the mercy of those chemicals. We're experiencing thoughts, reactions, and emotions without realizing that we can strategically influence them. And physical intelligence is the ability to detect and then actively manage the balance of certain key chemicals. Of those hundreds, some of them are doing their jobs just fine and we don't, want to, we don't want to do anything with them. We want to leave them be and let them do their thing. But for these certain key chemicals, there are eight that we talk about in the book. There are actually more than that that we can actively manage, but we focus on eight in the book. If we can do that, if we can get that what we call the chemical cocktail right, then we can stress less, achieve more, and live more happily, work more happily. And that's the overarching premise of the book. 
is to help people understand this chemical makeup and to more strategically approach how they incorporate that into their lives to power their performance. Interesting. So I guess if emotion is driven by chemistry, then any chance of complete rationality is slim to none. So in my mind, the question then becomes, how do we start working with it rather than against it? Yeah, and I think Laura in particular had really nailed this in a very practical way. If you can imagine being stuck on a boat with three other people for nine months, two hours on, two hours off on the oars, 24 hours a day. Unbelievable. Yeah, the need for self-awareness must have been absolutely off the charts. Imagine how bad the average human is after a late night or with a toddler in the house. Self-awareness feels, when you talk to these experts, it really feels like the first amongst equals in the world of EQ. For me, the most important elements to emotional intelligence, especially when I think about uh, doing the row across the Pacific, that in our team, self-awareness was was fundamentally important. Um, I think if you can get at least one person within the team that is really switched on to their self-awareness, then the other parts of it can help to be moulded as long as the members of the team are adaptable. So I think there's different levels of awareness of how your personality is going to react and what your beliefs are and how you operate under pressure versus how you operate when you're you're tired, you're fatigued, you're hungry, all that sort of stuff. The nitty-gritty, because I think if you have that insight, you're then able to already have foresight to adjust given your surroundings and the people that you're working with in the team. I tap into two different modes. Right. So there's Laura number one, Laura number two. <laughs> and Laura number one would be pretty much 90% of the time. And then Laura number two comes out when pressure starts to come on, I get tired, I get hungry, and I feel like, and the pressure ups. And when the pressure ups, for me, Laura number two starts to get very assertive, it starts to get very focused, needs to get the job done. And so therefore my softness, my empathy, my skill set to, to kind of be soft, so to speak, goes or like reduces. But knowing that and having that awareness, as soon as I, and Laura number two, the way it feels to me is a real fire in my belly. So I can kind of strip it right back to what's the feeling I get and then that feeling, what's that drive in my thought process? By understanding my thought process, I'm then able to adapt it so I can get it early. So now I get the fire in my belly and I'll be able to pause. And even when I was out in the middle of the row, I'm hallucinating at night time, I'm completely shredded basically, I was still able to pause, then I was still able to go, right, this is going to land well with some and not with others. And in certain situations where the pressure's really on and actually decisions just needed to be made and I couldn't allow for time for thoughts and feelings for other people, I knew that the job needed to be done because that was a safety issue and that was a risk that needed to be taken. So therefore, knowing that that feeling and knowing that thought space, I kind of knew that I had to trigger that because that's where things just need to get done and if we didn't get it done we'd be under threat and then I would be able to bring back the softer skills. So what is the great enemy of what we're calling you know accurate decision making? It's adrenaline, it's stress response and it's being in the midst of any situation. One of the most fascinating experiences you can have actually as a poker player, I had it on day one like literally in 99 sat and watched my best friend playing poker for the first time for four hours before sitting in a game myself. And and you should still do it, you know, like every couple of months just to experience it. 
is watching someone else playing poker because they can be as good or much better than you and you're sitting there and you go, that's mad. Why? The other guy's clearly got a flush. Why can't you see that? Because the person is in the game, right? It doesn't matter how many beta blockers they've got in their system, they're still in the game. And um, two brilliant guys that I know uh, who work a lot with sports, their whole thing is about that third party. They will have two people coaching one asking coaching questions of the other person okay but everything that's useful is going to come from a third person who's outside that room watching it on a screen because they're not involved in the conversation so even your coach is still subjectively involved in this conversation so great decision making does come from that sense of dislocation because any form of involvement is releasing you know hormones and adrenaline and cortisol and everything else and you are in the emotion of the situation Emotions are chemicals. They're strands of neuropeptides. And we feel the change in emotion moving through our bodies, you know, when we have them. So, for example, an emotion like pride, most people agree that it sort of starts somewhere in the chest and moves outwards. An emotion like anxiety tends to clutch at, a, at some, uh, somewhere in the gut and move downwards and inwards. That's slightly different for everybody. But because, you know, the, one of the first of, of the five uh, competencies in, in emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Um, just, a, just as a very a place to start, we can learn to become more aware of our chemical cocktail through realizing that these are chemical changes in our bodies and getting used to the feeling of them so that we can name emotions and become more self-aware. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, considering just how different the worlds they all come from are. There seems to be this common and consistent idea of a third person or the need for objectivity or kind of dislocation, sort of rising above the chemical reactions. It seems to be a common thread, isn't it? I think we've seen that in really high-performing teams or even individuals we've worked with over the years, the coolness which comes with being self-aware feels like a real feature. Yeah. When you watch some of those guys operate, it feels like they're almost cheating. So there's all sorts of aspects to this. The first one is when you're hungry or you're tired or um, your body drains the, the neocortex of blood and glucose, so your decision-making becomes more primitive, and that can lead to, to bad decision-making. So genuinely, you know, be well-rested, be well-glucosed up. The amygdala is where we you know, produce sensations of fear. And again, one of the things that I would say is that fear is not a bad thing per se. In poker, you may experience um, a sensation of fear or trepidation, and that might be perfectly justified. That might be what wins you the hand. There's something we haven't talked about, actually, in this conversation, which is um, which is folding. None of my work is about taking risk willy-nilly. If you take two poker players who are both, you know, pretty good, not top poker players, but both pretty good, one of them makes more money than the other one, I guarantee you that one of the reasons is that because the good one folds more often. So that's, you know, it's a sense of fear. It's like, I'm not going to win this hand. You know, this other person has me beaten. So those, whether they come intuitively or from the data, can be really good sensations which you should respect and trust. And to go back to that single parent on benefits playing deal on a deal, how can we say to her that her fear of losing 32,000, which is going to completely transform her life, is a bad thing? So fear which, as you're implying, stops us from making that step and stops us from taking good productive risk is a bad thing, but not all fear necessarily is a bad thing. So 
one of the first places that we start with the first of four elements that form the backbone of physical intelligence is our strengths. The four elements are strength, flexibility, resilience, and endurance. And with strength, this is all about our confidence and our risk tolerance, our ability to stand ground and speak and behave with a cool head under pressure, making really great decisions in the moment. And that fundamentally requires us to be aware of when we have experienced an amygdala hijack or a threat response where our cortisol spikes and then changes our decision-making process to one that's coming from threat rather than clear-headedness. So there's a lot in there about the fear response and how to manage it. I don't know about you, but I find just chatting with these guys has given us a new language which we can talk about some of the scary, exciting stuff we're doing in our business, whether it's hiring or some of the new ventures we've been talking about or even agreeing to do this podcast. I love Claire's thinking about chemicals. Surely this stuff should be taught in schools. I think it's much more important than watching a piece of magnesium whiz round in a bucket. <laughs> As an aside, uh, do you think it's too late to create a band called Amygdala Hijack? <laughs> yeah, I think it's too late for you, yeah. Maybe it's a thriller or a fashion label. Good luck with that. <laughs> well, if there was a thing about dealing with the challenges or the stressy bits, our experts are also keen to throw in some thoughts on mindset and what happens when you make the wrong decision, which I guess relates more to emotion regulation and having a strong motivation which keeps you going in the face of setbacks. I think the idea of growth mindset is being taught in schools these days, you know, helping kids and execs of the future to try things, you know, to be okay with getting it wrong and to redefine what failure means, but always learning and then bouncing back. I think resilience is a, it's a bit of a buzzword at the minute, isn't it? Uh, it does get used a lot and we see it in different formats. Um, you know, we talk about, psych, so I would say, psychological resilience versus physical resilience. So, you know, in our, as kind of, in the sports science medicine sort of world and getting somebody to perform you can look at physical resilience and robustness and actually can the body take and withstand what it needs to versus the psychological resilience of being able to have that bounce back ability so when the going gets tough and you get knockbacks you get so-called failures that they basically learn from that and continue to to grow they don't let it change the pathway in a negative or they don't let it sort of hold on um, so for me, if I also take it to the row, you know, our, our resilience was one of our core values that we sort of said it's got to be about getting back on that seat every time we get knocked down, and that's kind of a carry through psychologically as well as a physical, um, and how we did that as an individual as well as a team to be cohesive in, in our resilience. So yes, we will talk about fitness as it relates to building our capability our, in, in, in each of those areas. Strength being, as Claire described, that inner strength, confidence, risk tolerance, resolve, flexibility, collaboration, creativity, innovation, adaptability. Resilience, as we define it, is all about bouncing back from disappointment, maintaining a learning mindset rather than wallowing in whatever's happened that's gone wrong. Endurance is maintaining a sustained effort over the long term, keeping our energy high, keeping focused on the end of on that light at the end of the tunnel, especially when it starts to close. How do we open that tunnel back up and boost ourselves so that we can keep moving forward over the long term? So that's how we're defining them, and the techniques are not 
necessarily the te- our techniques. So in the book, there are 80 techniques. There are over 100 overall, but in the book, there are 80, approximately 20 per element. And there are ways of breathing, ways of moving, thinking, and communicating or interacting. My experience, though, I, I do I have seen people, I think, by to build resilience, I would say you kind of need to stress it. And like it is how you respond to stress. And it's then being able to review how you responded to that stress and giving an opportunity to then be exposed to it again in a different space and time. And I think if you if you take it from a one shot vision of how did somebody respond under pressure, under stress, and they you know, they didn't respond very well, however you want to measure that, but you don't give them an opportunity to learn from that and see if they change then that's kind of a big judgment that's being made on that person. And I've seen people, yeah, not do so well, so in essence kind of really struggle under pressure, but yet come away from that, they've been given the opportunity to reflect on it and totally they've come back learning from some fruitful like failures that has only enabled them to grow. And in sport, the classic of that is if somebody's you know, they haven't made it, they haven't been selected for the Games. And they haven't been selected, not by choice, but because they haven't been able to perform when needed under pressure. Um, or that they're just not quite there. And they, you know, psychologically they thought they might be, and therefore it's felt like a massive failure that they only had this one shot to be selected at this one competition and due to conditions or whatever, it hasn't happened. And therefore they're suddenly their four-year Olympic dream has gone. They can either see that as it's gone versus they can go, uh, actually, these were the things that meant that didn't work out, so therefore let's put that, those building blocks in place and just don't let that same failure happen again. Now, that, to me, is resilience. So I think if we had a line of sight, if we're thinking that resilience looks like somebody's absolutely you know, impeccable and they've never failed at something, I, I would actually be more questioning that than I would at those people that have gone through some some good pressure testing. It's not actually in that clip there, but I thought it was interesting. When I was talking to Laura, she mentioned that she thought that over 80% of the challenge of the row across the Pacific was mental and emotional. Only 20% of it was actually thinking about the, the physical strains of being on the oars. Which is surprising because she'd never even rowed before, had she? Yeah, exactly. I also love when she talked about the concept of bounce-back ability. I think that this is an old football term from about 15 years ago, but it's such a powerful idea. I also thought the way she talked about the social dimension is interesting. That social empathy feels really important. I think when you take a step back, this is one of them, if not the core skill, when you're dealing with any kind of external stakeholder, whether it's a CEO talking to investors, whether it's people in sales or marketing talking to their customers. The challenge is thinking about the world from a point of view of somebody else who is not you. They've got a different view of the world, and I think that's really important. I mean, isn't that all that marketing is, really? And as marketeers, shouldn't we be ninjas in this sort of stuff? I guess all too often we're being forced to focus on the internal stuff and we forget about being empathetic. I think, sadly, that's true. I like the fact that, Laura, when she talks about empathy, it doesn't mean giving in or doing what others Mm. demand. I think that's often at the very worst of marketing or how big businesses react to changing markets, about doing exactly what the customer is shouting loudest about. There needs to be a, a level of empathy. Um, with regards to the row, for sure, it was one of our values that we collectively agreed on that we we kind of shaped it in a different way, but fundamentally it was empathy to each other. Um, but we'd said, 
you know, our number one value was staying together as a team. And in order to do that, we wanted to be kind to each other and made sure that everything that we were doing was through a lens of kindness. Um, that being said, you've got to also you've also got to look at the levels of empathy because, like now, currently in in professional sport, at the minute, I'd say we have to have a level of empathy for sure because that's how you build rapport and understanding with with your athletes. But if you have too much empathy, you end up actually drawing a lot of their emotional energy and so you take a lot of that on which then becomes draining for you which then is hard to have that kind of um, the, the right separation to be able to then maintain a professional boundary so I think empathy there's stages of it there's flex that you've got to have within it um, and you've got to really recognize when you're drawing on it to make sure that it doesn't drain your energies so again, it comes back to being self-aware, that it comes back to that self-regulation, sort of self-preservation, that go back to your sort of you know classic analogy of inner flight and oxygen. You've got to put it on yourself first before you put it on the person next to you. And to me, when you get empathy, you've got to make sure you're giving yourself enough empathy to understand it's not going to drain you if you're giving some away. So... There it is, a whistle-stop tour of emotional intelligence, which is a huge topic, but an interesting one, I think you'll agree. As I was listening, I made a, some notes of some themes that I thought were important, but also I think importantly for me that lead to some kind of application. The first thing it dawned on me is that it's this, you know, it's about relaxing, isn't it? That rational decision-making or complete rational decision-making isn't possible or even the right thing to do. So denying emotion isn't necessarily a good thing. It's kind of in our chemistry and the more emotionally tuned in we are, then the better outcomes we can make both personally and for the business. Second thing I'd written down was self-awareness feels like it is the key bedrock from which to build. Getting beyond and outside of yourself is the key skill. And I think it matters most uh, is when the pressure's on, but probably when it's hardest too. Thirdly, um, fear. It feels like a natural inhibitor. Um, not always for bad reasons, but it does hold you back. But I think as long as we are self-aware enough to see it, then we're less likely to be subject to the amygdala hijack. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I, there's a couple of other things I noted. I think it's it's true to say that particularly in agile environments and fast-changing markets, things aren't always going to go to plan. That idea of resilience is really important. And that means we come back to that idea of growth mindset. I think finally, the importance of empathy and balancing that with the understanding of others um, and whether it's the dynamics in the group of customers or colleagues but not giving into it. I think this theme ties back into the marketing concept of insight, of understanding the motivations behind the behaviours, not just the behaviours, really digging into why others are doing what they're doing. Yeah, decent list. Um, but there's one big thought before we go, isn't there, that I think we shouldn't forget. Do you know what it is? <laughs> no, tell me. Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so unlike IQ, which is fixed, your EQ can be increased by putting it into practice uh, and trying these principles and implications. And the more you do it, the better you'll become. And I guess the more effective you'll be as a marketeer, a business leader, or just an individual. Yeah, fair point. Uh, I'm going to disappear off and a trademark amygdala hijack because I think actually it could be an energy drink or I was thinking a super strength craft beer. Mm, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, a massive thanks to Laura, Casper, Claire and Patricia for their time and thoughts. And next up, we're going to be tackling a uh, sort of related but equally tricking topic where we're going to be looking at risk and decision-making. And I think that's really important for anyone tasked with growth, uh, with innovation, or even trying to challenge a, a conservative culture. Mm -hmm.